are listening to the Masters of Change show with your host, Barra Ali. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, joining us uh, for a new episode. Uh, I have a very special guest, my good friend, David Godreau. How are you doing, David? I'm doing great. Thanks, Barra. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we had the opportunity to do this. So uh, I'm sure it's going to be beneficial to me and to the audience. So, so David, uh, let's start a little bit about, tell me a little bit about you and uh, what you really do. Uh, well, at the moment, I would say 80% of my work is facilitation of one sort. So doing strategic planning sessions, working with senior management teams, uh, helping them have conversations that hopefully are more productive than they would if they were to have them on their own. And then another small percentage is emceeing conferences. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is occasionally I do keynote speaking, mostly around somehow linked to the notion of courage. So the courage to lead, the courage to innovate, the courage to change, things like that. So is there, are there any areas, um, any industries that you really like to work in or specialize in? Well, the last few years, probably the last seven or eight years, I've worked quite a bit in the credit union system, working with credit union boards, with uh, with strategic partners uh, at conferences and things like that. So I've I've really enjoyed that because I enjoy their their uh, their values and their mm-hmm. focus on that, not being driven by having to meet a shareholder return, but rather by providing maximum value for the members. I've <clears throat> in the past enjoyed working with them. Um, one particular mining company, mostly because my academic background way back when was in earth science. And I've had an opportunity to travel to some places that I probably never otherwise get to, such mm-hmm. as, <clears throat> excuse me, the Northwest Territories for a diamond mine up there, uh, a copper mine in, in Peru, mm-hmm. a, uh, a bauxite mine in Suriname, and uh, an anthracite mine in Borneo. So all just very short times, but uh very interesting places to go to. Absolutely. And you love stage. I mean, I've seen you on stage and you love people's present and, and uh, very entertaining person as well as very educational. Ah, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Um, do you really like that piece? I mean, as performance, a lot, we, we, we like talking, but do you, do you enjoy the keynote speaking piece better than the consulting piece? Which one do you find it more fits, well, David? Uh, they're quite different. I, what I, <clears throat> as a keynote speaker, I, I don't like just one way conversations. I don't like being on the receiving end of those. I don't like being on the delivery end. So when I'm on stage, I try to find ways to engage the audience with mm-hmm. me or with each other. I think they get a whole lot more out of it. My, I guess my general um, complaint about a lot of conferences, for example, is you have you know 500,000 really smart people in a room mm-hmm. and they listen to one person present their perspective on an issue. And then you have 500 to 1,000 people walk out of the room with one person's perspective. And I think that's not sufficient to bring a change about in an organization. You have to give people a chance to talk about it, wrestle with it, so that it increases the chances that they'll actually do something with the information that they heard. So when I'm speaking, I do try to get people talking back <laughs> and talk to each other. And I guess that's, uh, that's part of it is, um, as you said, sometimes as you're standing in front of the, the stage talking and people are receiving, and sometimes you don't know whether people are really receiving the information you try to tell them or they're, they're there because they are told versus when you do a breakup session, a breakout session or some sort of a, a workshop, people have more interactivity and there's more feedback. I mean, and these days you can pretty much count that a 
count out that a good portion of the audience is going to be on their on their smartphones or on their their uh, their pads, iPads, or or whatever with other folks. So I think it's really rare that you get a hundred percent of the people, and especially if it's a real big name speaker that's charging, you know, twenty or thirty grand, who's probably said the same thing for many many times, and the people in the audience have probably heard some of it or read about it. You know, you can almost guarantee that there are going to be either tweeting people about who they're listening to or checking their stocks or their email or something else like that, just because it's so easy to do that. Absolutely. So I think the, the days of having the person at the front command the attention of everyone in the audience, I think those days are pretty much gone. You, so, so you've seen a shift, a big shift. Oh, absolutely. So absolutely. I, Especially with younger groups. I was uh, speaking at something called the water cooler okay. down in, uh, in Wisconsin. And it was mostly young folks in the credit union system around the use of technology and social media. Mm -hmm. And it really hit me then when, uh, you know, the most common thing I saw other people's heads, they were all tilted down on their iPhones, on their computers, on the whatever. So if your ego demands that you have people giving you the rapt attention, then keynote speaking these days is probably not the way to go. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, with that in mind, do you see people, uh, what are strategies you would give people to actually um, deal with such situation? Well, first of all, get over themselves. It's not about, uh, it's not about you, it's about the audience. So mm -hmm. I think from a design standpoint, asking yourself what those in the audience need to help them be more successful and then do whatever you can to deliver that. And I Absolutely. think much more important that you take that perspective than trying to think of all the great things that you want people to hear you say. It sort of it puts the onus on the speaker to really be serving the audience rather than expecting the audience to serve him or her. Absolutely. So now the, the, the nature of keynote from what you're saying, and I don't know if that's what, what's moving. I mean, we know keynote speaking, you see it, the pretty guy or the pretty girl stands in front of people and they just give their message without any interactivity. Do you see, I mean, you're expert, not just necessarily as a speaker, but you were the former president of the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers. That's a, a very reputational uh, organization. Do you see that keynoting is moving more toward an interactivity rather than becoming a sender and receiver? You know, I'm not so sure that, <clears throat> that that's the transition. I think the transition is that whoever's on stage really has to provide value. Mm -hmm and to be able to demonstrate that it's value. So there may be some people, I mean, depending on the subject, it may be that, that uh, there is some content that's absolutely critical for everyone to understand uh, if that's really going to get the value. I see. But uh, I would say that most of the groups I work with, they want people to be doing something differently, not just thinking something differently when they leave. Now, part of the challenge is you have with TED Talks, you have people used to the sort of the seven or eight to 20 minute presentation, mm -hmm. then people are gone and, uh, you know, what I'd like to see in those kind of settings is where after someone is presented that there's 10 or 15 minutes for people in small groups to say, what about that content landed for them? How might they use it? Okay. What are the parts that I uh, think will be most value to them? And that'll, I think, greatly increase the value from their time in front of a speaker. Absolutely. And as a facilitator, you you would know how that is important and how that crucial is in, in, in really getting the message to to resonate with people. I, in fact, I think it's irresponsible if you don't do that. Uh-huh. Thank you for sharing this. Um, so, David, you say people are on their smartphones and their iPads. Uh, do you think 
what's the percentage from what you've seen? I mean, I know people tweet and they talk about the speaker and, and like it's the cool thing now to connect with other people and not necessarily pay attention. I and mean, we see a lot of people, you know, tweeting. Uh, but do you see the big percentage they're really paying attention and promoting what they're learning and sharing it with the world versus they're being bored or they heard it, as you said, many times and they're just sitting there because their boss told them to go and they're just sitting there just killing time? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it depends on on the topic and how relevant it is for them at uh, any particular time. I, I was asked to speak at a uh, conference just about 18 months ago, mm-hmm. and just to do a concurrent session, and they sent out a list of, of basically what the agenda was going to look like, mm-hmm. as well as a list of some of the, the keynote speakers that they were thinking of, of bringing in as a draw to get people to come to the conference. Mm-hmm. And my advice to them was, you know what, I these are great speakers. Some of them are, are good personal friends of mine, but I would not waste your money because they have a great message, but it's irrelevant to your audience. So I suggest that every decision they make around this conference had to be able to either directly or indirectly show value to the participants, show value to their organization, and show value to the customers. And if any suggestion for for a programming piece didn't meet all those three, those three criteria, to let it go and find something else. And so, you know, instead of using a big name to draw people in that wouldn't have drawn them quite frankly, mm-hmm. and wouldn't have got their managers to pay for it. Right. They instead had a, a really valuable conference that focused on value to those three different groups I just mentioned. So, so as a, as a recommendation to people who are holding conferences, because I know we talk about the online guru and now everybody who has a blog or wrote a, a booklet became an expert and became the go-to person uh, to do this, I, I had a session a few um, few days ago with with a, another author, and he said, you know, credibility is now you buy credibility rather than you earn credibility. Yeah, I think in some in some cases that's it. You know, because you you take the content and you repurpose it eight different ways. You you blog it, you do an ebook, you, all those kinds of things, and uh, creates the impression that you're out there a lot. And maybe there's some value in that if you know if you being an expert and a content provider, but uh, well, just just like people that try to get everyone to buy the book on a certain day so mm-hmm. that it hits the Amazon number one list, right? You know, and to be able to say that you're a, a number one bestseller—that's just crap. And I think, am I allowed to say that? Yeah. And uh, I think I think people are onto that. There's a great degree of skepticism right. for any claim that anyone makes about how good they are and how valuable they are and how much of an expert they are. And why do you think that has is is been happening for people like uh, the content? Is it the content? Ba- is it because of the quality of the content, or because audience are really wor- looking for this? Yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not sure why. That's, you know, I think it's that there's a lot of people that are giving advice to others on how to build their credibility. And so people are paying attention to that and trying to generate content mm-hmm. to to do that. I mean, some of it is great. Like one of uh, one of our colleagues, Mary Charlson, blogs on Sunday because mm-hmm. she finds that's when people read it. And I love reading hers. First of all, because it's on Sunday, but secondly, it's great content that mm-hmm. I can use. A lot of the things that I've signed up for at various times, I don't bother looking at. Sure. You know, I should probably just be getting rid of it. If you're looking for something specific and you can latch on to someone, you know, you'll let others know. Uh, you know, that's why things like uh, your clout score, 
Absolutely. can be interesting if you see, you know, what's being what's being passed around to other people rather than just liked and passed off. Now, uh, we struggle as, I mean, people on the internet, they're building their bus- their businesses, always a struggle about learning and looking for experts. And you were, uh, yeah, as we spoke before, you were the former president of a very reputational organization that provides an excellent expertise to, to the world. Can you tell us a little bit about how the organization qualifies as speakers and what, how do they call it expert? <laughs> okay, well, I would, I would say that they, they're just changing some things now to ensure that when you apply for membership that you do have an area of expertise. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the past, there's been a number of people that like the notion of being a keynote speaker, making the big bucks, but they don't have an area of expertise. I see. And so now we're trying to actually, you know, find a way to ensure that they have some, some expertise. And quite frankly, very few people make the majority of the money as keynote speakers. And I think one of the misperceptions or misconceptions about, uh, about CAPS is that it's just for keynote speakers. Right. And the, you know, the vast majority of uh, the members are people that are trainers. Mm-hmm. They do training, they might do some facilitation, might do some coaching, and then a few people do keynote speaking. But I think the need for ensuring that information is transferred into the organization is requiring more and more people to do things like, uh, you know, workshops and facilitating meetings and, uh, you know, after the talk support to ensure that those things happen. So I think the day of the, you know, the the $20,000, $30,000 keynote speaker, which there are some around, they're very good. Mm -hmm. I think that's starting to fade, to diminish. I see. I, see. I think it is. Yeah. I hope it is. That's very self-serving because I'm not one of those people. Right. Yeah, it's different business models in, in speaking. Uh, we talk about it. But some people think that, you know, the moment they say, I'm an expert, they will make the twenty, thirty thousand um, $30,000 keynote yeah. speaker. You know, and I think that it will probably be better if everyone that gets on stage, first of all, thinks of themselves as being a change agent. That they're up there to somehow bring about a change, a change in perception, change of knowledge, change of behavior. Mm-hmm. If, if they're up there, I mean, and there's a case to be made for the entertaining speaker that's strictly entertainment, right. that, you know, their change is changing someone's attitude and frame of mind. But uh, I think when you step on stage, you should have first asked yourself, what can I do that's going to bring about some change that's perceived to be of value by the people that are listening to me. How do you define facilitation from your own point of view that you have worked oh, in the well, industry? Well, I, I mean, I think the technical definition is, is you know, to make something easy. It's the same root as the word facile or mm-hmm. easy. So it's, you know, I think one of the biggest pieces is, you know, from a design perspective is to ask oneself, how do you bring about the kind of change that's required by by your client. And mm-hmm. in some cases, that's helping the senior management team have a tough conversation that they've been avoiding, you know, so you can, you know, balance the, uh, manage the egos, uh, you know, in some cases, like if you're, I like to challenge the tough design challenges. So a colleague, a colleague of mine and I had to facilitate a three and a half hour forum with 600 people. Okay. You can't lecture to 600 people. You have to figure out how to engage them, what can happen on stage, whether you use panels, whether you have worksheets at the table, small group conversations, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a Q&A in such a way that you can get a whole pile of people engaged. I love the challenge of figuring out something like that. So, you know, facilitation is about helping a client bring about some sort of desired outcome 
by helping them have higher quality conversations that they, than they might otherwise have. And when you are hired um, by the organization, you are told about the objectives of what you what the clients would like to achieve. Well, y- yeah, I mean, if part of it's an inquiry, <laughs> find out if what they say they want is what they really want. Right. So, how to figure out what the, what the greatest good is? Sometimes the people that uh, that hire facilitators are actually the root of the problem that they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. So it's having the courage, the integrity of the facilitator to let them know that and that they have to be willing to uh, to engage in what might be a tough conversation, but one that will benefit their organization. And do you find that this is very challenging when they really don't know what, they, what they're trying to achieve? Well, sometimes, but then that's that's part of my role is to okay. help them figure that out. And if I can't figure it out and they're unclear on it, then maybe it's best not to have the meeting. Absolutely. Now, do you figure it out before you start the facilitation? I mean, I'm talking about... Uh, my my understanding to facilitation a group of people for 20 30 uh, like 20 30 people in a room doing exercises or that's not the part of i mean that's maybe just one angle of looking at it i i'd say that that uh, what happens before the meeting yeah is as much more important than what happens at the meeting in terms of generating the outcome so in some cases that's doing interviews to find out what's going on to mm-hmm. establish rapport to make the connections to identify the problem right. Sometimes it's surveying people. Like I'm doing a presentation tomorrow night in Edmonton to the, mm-hmm. the Edmonton chapter of CAPS okay. on facilitation, the art of facilitation. And so I did a survey of people that are coming to find out what they want because you know to lecture on facilitation is somewhat would be somewhat ironic. Right. So trying to find out what they're interested in, what some of their challenges are, and then structure the session to meet as many of those as possible. I see. So, so uh, when they, when you were told, let's take this example as a, uh, as the main example, when you were told to do this session, they ask you to do just the art of facilitation. Uh, they said they want me to do something on facilitation, uh, facilitation. Yeah. but they, they not necessarily know the outcome. I wanted to know how the, how you determined what was said before and what, what you found out that this is what really people need. Well, it's a little bit different that it's not a client. They're just trying to provide some programming. But mm-hmm. but what I did is say I'd like to do a survey to find out who's going to be there, what they're interested, what their level of expertise is, what will make the session uh, be considered good value for them. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, you know, the questions that you ask in a survey, and then I sent the fee- I sent the survey feedback back out to them as well before the session. So mm-hmm. they kind of had a sense of where everyone else was coming from. But you get people coming into the meeting that are ready to work and they know what's going to be happening. So I think you get a lot more done a lot faster mm-hmm. because you're not spending time dancing around trying to explain to people what's going to happen. Absolutely. Now, without knowing, I mean, when you go to to facilitate a session, you have an idea what you want to accomplish and how you want to lead people through this change, whether it's um, it's a different aspects of it or it's a mental change from not that what I mean is by, by the psychology of a mental change, but what I mean is by looking at it from a completely different perspective. Um, have you, I mean, it's, it's very hard sometimes to estimate how much time it takes for people to actually observe what you want. Have you seen um, the cases? Can you tell me a little bit about the cases where you th- thought you would get the outcome easily in this amount of time and, and uh, it was challenging to deliver that. So, so first of all, it never goes as planned. Mm-hmm. Never. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> that's, why, 
that's one thing that you can count on. So I don't have an idea of exactly what's going to happen. I have an idea of what the client would like to have happen mm-hmm. and then put together a design that I think will get them there. Uh-huh. But then at the very beginning of the meeting, I suggest that my preference is to follow the value more so than follow the agenda, which okay. means if we get into something that appears like it's really important, let's take the time we need to get closure on it. And if there's something that doesn't seem as important, let's drop it off. I mean, I was doing a session, a board planning session last year, and uh, everyone had agreed, the management team, the board, on, on what the process is going to be. And, you know, during the first day, it, you know, it didn't really seem like it was clicking the way it should, but mm-hmm. it was the process that they'd agreed upon. So that night, they, uh, the two people that were responsible for the meeting came to me and said, you think it would be okay if, if we made a few changes for tomorrow? <laughs> I said, absolutely. And we that night, I totally changed the design to something mm-hmm. which wasn't what they were looking for and wasn't what they asked for when they hired me. Right. But turns out that was what they needed. So totally redid the next day to get them what they wanted. And they were very, very pleased. And they were bringing me back this year again. Brilliant. One of the keys is to be flexible and, you know, attuned enough to know where the value is and to be willing to let go of an agenda, which is sometimes difficult. Yeah. If you're a keynote speaker to change midstream, or yeah. if you're a trainer supposed to deliver particular content, yeah. it's a little bit easier as a facilitator if you're willing to, to shift to follow the value. You, you said it's right. I mean, if you are willing to do so, uh, some people are not willing to do so. And, and uh, I, I think from sometimes what I've seen is, People are comfortable with what they know very well and they try to apply what they know very well. And when you ask them to change something in the middle, it's very hard because they see it like a picture. They cannot imagine it starting well, from the middle. That uh, that actually happened with me one time where there was some work that I didn't think I was the best to do, mm-hmm. the best person to do it. And I recommended a, a colleague of mine who was an expert in this area, who's mm-hmm. a, who was a trainer. I see. And he did a great job on that program. Well, I guess about six weeks later, they asked him, I I again wasn't available, and they asked him to facilitate a meeting. And I would have not recommended him to facilitate. He's a fabulous trainer, not as good as a facilitator. I see. And it just, it didn't work out because he couldn't change and follow, you know, what was the original agenda. And it's not, I mean, his skill set, he's an incredible trainer. Just facilitation is... A little bit different. You can't approach it the same way. Absolutely. Um, what's the crucial difference uh, from your perspective? What are the skills that a trainer does not have, a facilitator should have? Or what are the skill set that a trainer should have in order to be considered a facilitator? Well, you know, first of all, I guess I, I would tend not to use the label so much of trainer and facilitator okay. because Fair as enough. a trainer, you can use facilitator processes. And as a facilitator, there might be some times when you have to train. Uh, you know, I think to be able to go back and forth, you have to recognize what's needed by the client to be able to adapt. So from, you know, when I am telling you know, people ask, what, what should I do to get better as a facilitator? Well, take facilitation courses is one thing, mm-hmm. but um, <clears throat> take improv classes. Improv is improv. fabulous training for being willing to deal with the things that might come up when you're facilitating. Right. It's like the last thing you want to do, it's great to be surprised by what's going on. Mm-hmm. It's not so good if you get shocked and paralyzed by what happens. So improv training 
is great for that. You know, the other thing would be going to going to places in town that you're not familiar with, like get out of your comfort zone. Okay. <clears throat> talk to people you wouldn't normally talk to. Talk to a homeless person. Talk to a um, a waiter or, you know, a colleague of mine <clears throat> describes some people as, as non-people. So they don't get recognized or acknowledged as people. And sometimes those are uh, people that are waiting, you know, serving in a restaurant or behind a Seven Eleven counter, things like that. And if you treat each person as a person and find out about their story and realize that there's a huge diversity of of, uh, of stories out there and be fascinated, interested in it, I think that's the kind of mindset that helps be a good facilitator. Well, never mind being a good facilitator, being a good human being. You know, like set aside your judgments, be curious, so embrace differences, embrace people. Those things are all really helpful. Yeah. You want to be a good facilitator, but certainly isn't limited just to facilitation. Absolutely, and and judgmental, so so true. It's so true that a lot of people become judgmental. It's like okay, because of this, we're labeling them and judging them. Uh, versus a facilitation yeah. skill is about listening and understanding. Yeah, curiosity is really critical. Curiosity, and 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 also like I, I this is another take uh, um, from what you said. Be surprised by by what's happening, but do not be shocked. Yep. Yep. Because it's, I mean, my <clears throat> my wife is a project manager, mm-hmm. and I've asked her if she's ever done a project that went exactly as planned. Of course, these are you know people that are trained to be very rigorous about the things they do, and she says it never goes as planned. Like, why would you be surprised when it didn't? Why Why should you be shocked? It's just mm-hmm. like that's part of the reality. You know, life isn't predictable. Some within a certain range it is, but, Correct. you know, it's pretty boring if you never get surprised. Yeah. And, and yeah, and, and you know, I, I can't can't imagine uh, a face of facilitator coming and this is going to happen and uh, they're, uh, they're blinking and their face is, uh, is red and they don't know what to do. That's, that's the worst thing to be in. Yep, and that happens. That happens yeah. sometimes, but, you know, hopefully not. Plus... You know, and maybe it's a maturity thing. Maybe it's uh, you know being a being a parent. Where you just uh, you just have to go with the flow, that's right? right. Just... And, and and that's I guess the difference between sometimes a, a professional and somebody who's just done it for 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 a few times. And that's where the exper- experience and the expertise come and highlight. Uh, And and I just want to take back something I just said, because I said go with the flow. I think it's, you know, recognize the flow and redirect it, Mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, sometimes you can get washed over by stuff that's going on if you're not there to to call it and identify it. I've learned way more from things that I didn't do that I should have than Mm -hmm. by doing things right, that's for sure. Now, David, how do you deal with a situation when you are in the middle of facilitation and you have a time limit and uh, a person is just go on and on and on. And uh, there's an, there's a kind of an urgent side, each one of us to say, let the person speak. But at the same time, you're watching at the clock and say, if I don't get this person to really settle, we might not be able to accomplish and do whatever we do. Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, one is to cry. If you just break down and cry, the shock of that usually gets them to stop. Um, cry. Cry, yeah, you know, just sob. Okay. <laughs> Can't believe you're saying that. It's my <laughs> meeting and you're screwing it. You know, I, I, I'd use that sparingly. Uh, another thing is to set up ground rules up front so that I'm not the conversation cop, that the whole group takes responsibility for it. Okay. 
And uh, to that extent, I'll quite often have the group either select from or generate a group of uh, a list of guidelines that they're then all responsible for and have uh, sometimes I'll use little cotton balls on the table and just let them know that if you see someone who's violating one of the principles we'd agreed upon, just gently toss one of those balls at them. And, uh, you know, if you're speaking and one of those comes at you, you might assume that it's just one person goofing around, but if you find 10 or 15 coming at you, then take notice and, you know, move on. I've also done things with, it's, this is one of the fun things with a group of politicians. Okay. And a group of um, economic development officers and looking at, at uh, it was part of a, a planning session, about 80 or 90 people. And when it was time for questions, to ask questions of content experts, what would happen is these mayors would stand up and rather than ask a question, they'd make a positioning statement about how great their community was before they actually asked the question. Okay. So after this had happened a couple of times, I said, okay, I'm on to you guys. Here's what we're going to do. If uh, you're sitting in the audience and you hear in the question period, someone making a statement rather than a question, just start clearing your throat. Okay. And so very quickly, and because a lot of people do this automatically, it's just their, their operating style. They start making a political statement or positioning rather than asking the question. That's right. So there'd be 10 or 15 people starting to clear their throats. And it was done in a way that was kind of funny. So no one was really <clears throat> was uh, judged harshly and put down, but it changed behavior pretty quickly. That's so great. when it was question period, people ask questions. So there's all kinds of different ways to do that. Part of it is to ask permission to do it up front, that if I see this happening, you know, I'd like to do this. And, you know, it's it's usually not a huge issue. Sometimes if it's going on, take someone aside at break and just, you know, point out what they're doing. Um, even if it's the most senior person in the room, I think you have to do that. So so cues, as you said, are the best way sometimes to avoid getting into into these things. Um and and uh, I've I mean that's something I would love to put um, in use uh, your suggestions and uh, your idea of really putting the ground rules at the beginning before you start. I this is very powerful. I I think whatever you do, you need to be uh, respectful and using a sense of of humor can help. So I was emceeing a conference a month or so ago, and there was one speaker who said, "I'm only going to take." this amount of time, let's say 40 minutes, leave 20 minutes for questions. I knew there was no way he's going to get done in that time. And sure enough, at 60 minutes, he was still going on and said, okay, now I'm going to take a few questions. And I had to come up on the stage and, and just in a very respectful way say, and I really wish we had time for that. Unfortunately, we're going to have to move on. So not to get into a sort of an ego battle with someone else, but just put it in the context of in the group's best interest, we have to move on. That's correct. Now, how do you, in, in a workshop you, you, you lead, um, uh, what are the, the shortest facilitation session you've run and what's the longest facilitation session have you ever run? Well, strictly facilitation, I mean, sometimes it's just a conversation for an hour. Okay. And then if it's a strategic planning session, it might be two or three days. I mean, it's not like a, a training session where there's a ton of content, but usually it's pretty intense because people are participating fully. So, I mean, I've done training workshops longer than that, but I'd say two and a half to three days would be considered a long one these mm -hmm. days. Most are sort of 
One and a half is a little short, but some people are leaning that way so they can get back to wherever they live. I see. But, you know, two to three days for planning sessions. Oh, wow. And then this one with uh, 600 people I mentioned, that was about three hours long. So it's really it's more about how much time you need to get the outcome they're looking for and then design to that. Absolutely. Now, what um, from a business perspective, running a facilitation uh, business, what are your advice to people who would like to consider facilitation as a career or as a business? Well, a bunch of things. One would be, as I said, take some improv training. Okay. There's some, uh, there's a, an organization, the International Association of Facilitators, that okay. runs some great conferences. And uh, I, the, I'm pretty sure that here in Vancouver, the Justice Institute used to have some programs on facilitation. Mm-hmm. There's some of the universities have have programs on that and uh, getting involved in your community. You know, sometimes if you're in a, you know, a church, a synagogue, a a mosque, whatever, there's opportunities to to facilitate. There's lots of books out on it for sure. But I think nothing beats experience just doing it. So volunteering something at, uh, you know, at a school in your neighborhood to do things like that. And if you had to do this, you know, uh, redo the business, um, do something different, what would you change about it? Um, I probably, I probably do more marketing. I mean, most of my work, like I hardly ever have to do an RFP or anything like that. It's pretty much always just referral business. Right but I probably have more online presence. Right. Um, and I would look at ancillary products. One of the differences between, in terms of building a business that you can do, this is why it's important to, to talk about your expertise rather than whether you're a, labeled as a trainer or a facilitator. Yeah. If all I do is facilitate, I can't really write about that experience because it's other people's content and that's right. proprietary and all that sort of thing. So, you know, I would probably supplement my income with developing a body of expertise in something that I can then write about, tweet about, blog about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, keynote speak about. So develop an area of, of expertise that is parallel to the facilitation practice. And probably, I guess the other thing would be to align with some other facilitators so that, you know, these days, a lot of things done at the last minute. I see. And to be able to have someone that that I can, I have a good a few good colleagues that I can recommend when I can't work for one of my clients, so that you know they're not going to try to scoop your client. They're going to serve them well. They honor the relationship they that they have with me, and vice versa. And so you know, to form a team or a group of people, I think another thing would be to get some either a virtual assistant or an in-person assistant to do a lot of the things that don't add so much value, like transferring information from flip charts and, and uh, you know, um, making good content look nice, having someone that's an expert in that and get them to do that sort of thing so that, you know, whatever you're really good at, that's what you're spending the majority of your time doing. And if you you're good be. at it, you love it, and it provides the most value. That's correct. And, and uh, having more of a, uh, an organization or support system, be it virtual or, or, uh, or live and in person, I think. Yeah, automating the the pieces that you should not do, and as an entrepreneur, and and focus on what you really are good at is good at. 
Yeah, and I think that's good advice for any business, not just facilitation. Um, David, it's been it's been really a pleasure having you here uh, on the show. I I learned a lot, and I am very confident a lot of people will be very inspired and and learn from your expertise and what you shared today. Uh, we're kind of coming to the end of uh, the show now. Uh, I wanted to ask you before we close if you had anything that you wanted to say that I didn't ask you. I think there's just you know there's no there's no magic formula. It's just about um, being mindful, being aware, knowing yourself, uh, knowing you know where you get triggered, and uh, trying to suspend that. And I think it really helps just to really enjoy and love people. Absolutely, and. Thank you so much for sharing this message and, and the advice. It's been a wonderful having you here. Um, I look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Uh, before we end, I wanted to uh, let people just ask you, where can people find more information about you and what you do? Well, uh, my LinkedIn profile is probably more current than my website. Mm-hmm. So just uh, check out David Guthrow, G-O-U-T-H-R-O at, uh, on LinkedIn. That's probably the best. There's uh, a profile on, on the Canadian Association of Professional Speakers, but I'd go LinkedIn and yep. Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I do a lot of posting of pictures and stuff there and having fun with that. Brilliant. And then I would just uh, have them contact you, Baran. You can pass them on. Absolutely. I will have the link to your website and your LinkedIn and your Facebook uh um, address down in the show notes so people can find more information about you. Sounds good. Wonderful. Thank you again, uh, David, for uh, for doing this and being uh, giving me the honor to interview and ask you questions. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. That was uh, the end of another episode with a great David Guthrow. Uh, until we meet again and we talk again, have a lovely day. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Masters of Change Show, bringing you the most unique, brilliant, and inspiring entrepreneurs who will share their expertise to help you start and grow your business or inspire you to follow your passion and live your dreams with your host and a big smile Barra Ali listen to the show 24/7 at www.mastersofchangeshow.com